11.30 a.m. KZOM. Oleander, Oregon. Coming at ya. Keep warm out there, everyone. Keep warm this November. Remember, stay safe, stay clean, don't be a jerk, and keep warm. All right. So, hey, this is the month of November. KZOM. Mayor, we are going to have, says we are going to have some kind of harvest fest. So, look for the harvest parade coming at you. I, I, I thought, did we already have a harvest parade? I don't think so. Anyway, look for this harvest parade coming up soon. And look for us on the KZOM float. This time, we get to be in the parade and report on the parade. KZOM, Oleander, Oregon. 11.30 a.m. Up next, Radio Free Oleander. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Welcome to Radio Free Oleander, a weekly show showcasing the best of 11.30 a.m. KZOM, Oleander, Oregon. Thank you for listening. Your hosts are D.B. Spitzer and David Heath. Here we go. Hey, everyone. It's me, DB, and this guy over here, that's uh, Farmer Dave. Dave, how's it going? I am well. All right. Goats are well. Everything seems to be going well. Nice. That's always good to hear. I have to say, uh, things are uh, finally uh, getting back to normal over in my neck of the woods over in Oleander, uh, out by the cemetery and such. Uh, uh, about Halloween, we got a lot bunch of people from Portland uh, drifting down and from Boring and up from Sandy, uh, drifting in to like skulk around the what hundred hundred acre hundred acre graveyard yeah uh glorious resurrection cemetery yeah L- largest cemetery in oregon you'd think i'd remember the name i mean i have to walk through the gates every yeah. day to get to uh my house but yeah no and uh yeah so we had a bunch of uh out of towners which it, it's everyone remember this is uh there, there's a pandemic going on don't don't uh treat someone else's uh someone else's town like your vacation and people live there and you know respect uh respect local laws wear a mask and uh you know don't be a creep be be cool stay safe be clean stay warm don't throw eggs at the mansion yeah 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 don't throw eggs at the mansion uh sarah has to power wash that stuff off and also um so uh locals show up and scare off uh, all of the out-of-towners not not by being like scary or like just you know just, not wearing like zombie costumes. No no no, just just showing up, just showing up and being oleander folk, and they're like, Ugh. I think that the word's starting to get out there in Portland about oleander. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, good or bad. I, I, I'm sure maybe maybe uh, Cletus and uh, the the. Uh the uh, voluntary police department walking around with their samurai swords might have scared a few of them. <laughs> yeah, ugh. Don't, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, well, you know, because uh, those who maybe weren't listening last month, but Oleander sort of, Oleander just, it's kind of boring. It just, the things we're used to it doing in October just doesn't do. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, I was grateful to see you know, so my, my friends, a Bjorn and Span and Span, mm-hmm. you know, they're, um, they are, they, 
I hate to say, they look kind of, they're wonderful people. Yeah. They, they look kind of like lawn gnomes because they're, <laughs> yes. they're actually elders of, you know, they're, they're elders of the, uh, uh, the uh, Norwegian Orthodox Church. And mm-hmm, so they mm-hmm. wear these red conical hats yes. and these blue jackets. Uh, and, and they're, they're, they're short, but they're sort of thin. And, and, the, you know, bless, bless their soul. Their heart's in the right place. And, and so they're always afraid, you know, and, and these guys are like just skin and bone and, and, and let's face it, I could lose some weight, mm-hmm. but they're always like, you'll, you'll, you'll never get a wife, you know, you're just too skinny. So they keep bringing me looter fish and their heart's in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, they live next door, uh, to, uh, to, uh, the old, uh, Gregor estate and, uh, I don't know if you can hear that, but I think there's something going on in the cemetery. I'm gonna have to yeah. check that out later. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um. So, or, uh, or maybe, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned Gregor Estate on the air, but, uh, but so they're they're out there. They're afraid that the Cobra Lily, the the urban legend of mm-hmm. Oleander, is out there. So these little guys, they stand like four foot eleven, probably weigh ninety eight pounds. You know, yeah. if they inhale, mm-hmm. and and they've got these huge giant double-headed battle axes you know that they're they're got these marks that are the 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 runes of the norwegian orthodox christian church and they're just screaming at you know their their neighbors who've been abandoned for you know almost a century their property telling the the cobra lily you know the, to be gone and and i just love this town I just saw this. And I am so glad things are back to normal. I, I've just lived here too long. Oh yeah. I... So yeah, it looks looks like we're going back to normal. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, no, um, Oblivion's has a new uh, a new burger for uh, Thanksgiving, which is pretty much like a massive, massive pile of food that has all of the Thanksgiving uh, accoutrements that one generally thinks of. Um, and instead of it being hamburger patties, it's turkey burger patties, and it's gravy, and it's stuffing, and it's yams with marshmallows. And this is all in burger form. And then mashed like, potatoes. Mashed potatoes, and then on the side, mashed potatoes, mashed potato fries, and a big thing of gravy so that you can dunk it. And it's all for twenty-five, twenty-five. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, head on down to Oblivion's and ask for the Plymouth. I, I think it has a bunch of Y's, but it's Plymouth. So yeah, you probably say it better than I do. Yes, ask for the Plymouth. Hey, 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 <laughs> the, the Plymouth, not a car. No, even though I mean, it, it'll hit you in the guts like a car. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You know what woke me up this morning? What's that? A bunch of goats. Oh. Goats being buzzed by a, a drone. A drone, a goat drone. Yeah, you know I. Was, you know, ran out there with my my uh, pajamas. I was just cursing and yelling and, and screaming at Darcy, and you know, but I, I kind of missed it. Yeah. Hmm. So, so yeah. Um. Uh, Oleander's back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. And same weird little town it normally is. So. Yeah. Yeah. All and right. And we have uh, we have a theme this month. We do. We do. It is Pulp Noir November. Sounds like a mystery to me. It is. <laughs> so, 
and, 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 and I guess we'll probably focus on both. I mean, let's we, we chose noir too because they're related, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. um, but it it has an end, so it was a better tie into November. Oh yeah. So yeah. a little bit of talking, talk a little bit about pulp. So um, the pulp magazines in the twenties, thirties, uh, up to forties, and they even lasted up to the fifties. Oh yeah. But um. So, uh, what are some of the things you think of when you think of pulp? When I think of pulp, I think of the old pulp covers of like, uh, like scantily clad ladies and uh, muscular guys and like weird creatures and fantastical machines and stuff like that. Is first thing that comes to mind is zeppelins and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> And so the the cover, so you get paid a certain amount if you made a photo pulp story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if that story was chosen as what they were going to do the cover of, then you get paid a bonus. Oh yeah. So a lot of writers, a lot of writers got really good at this. Robert E. Howard, that he would write something in, and, and to be honest, you know they they call it saucy. Yeah. Which was, you know, but in reality, we're talking P- not even PG 13 now, but they were PG. Uh, so they would write something that would have something, you know, scandalous or saucy mm-hmm. so that they would get that cover, they'd get that bonus. Yeah. So, you know, one thing about pulp is, is the, where it came from. Mm-hmm. So the, the term pulp, it, it comes from the pulp paper. Okay. And what happened, two things are going to happen in the 1920s that are sort of going to collide. And one is that the United States is more or less literate. Yeah. I don't know what the exact percentage is, but it was 80 to 90 percent of America was literate. The other was this pulp, this actual paper that could be made cheaply. So instead, you know, before they had this glossy paper, they could um, go much less expensive with this pulp paper. And the, we think of it as cheap, terrible paper, mm-hmm. and it was, but the fact that they could mass produce it, this was a major technical advantage at the time. And I'm starting to think, uh, how, how long ago were comic books, did they quit printing comics on pulp? Because I... I remember like reading Dell comics, like uh, Scrooge McDuck comics and uh, old X-Men comics on like pulp, like for, I don't know if it was the four color process at that point in time, but it was like, just like, just terrible color, just on terrible paper. And then years later, like buying a comic book and being like, wait a minute, this is like magazine material. <laughs> so I think that was, I think that we started to see that in the return uh-huh. in, in the 90s. Okay. Uh, when we get, when we get computerized coloring. Gotcha. All right. And then and they want this sort of more pa- paper for the computerized, more of the coloring. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what we're talking about comic books at this point. We haven't even gotten anywhere near Bill Gaines if we're talking about pulps and how horror comics killed everything almost and Anyway, let's <laughs> let's get back so, to the twenties. So you, know you know what the first pulp magazine was? What was the first pulp magazine? It was Argosy. Ooh. And what it could do is, so it's it's could basically take so much more 
uh, short stories and combine them. And so it was, they were coming up to, a, I, I want to say, over 100 pages, uh-huh. uh, I think close in some cases, 200 pages. And, and so their, their, their motto was that uh, a dollar's worth of reading for 10 cents. Oh, wow. And just revolutionary. I mean, it literally. So, so basically, everyone else that was making, you know, mass production, you know, magazines at the same time, uh-huh. they had to start following what Argosy was doing. And so Argosy has a bunch. And Argosy, uh, up to, you know, I, I remember my uncle having a couple of Argosies in, you know, the 6th, I think it finally uh, closed. Mm-hmm. But they had everything from all sorts of pulps. So that's it. We think of pulp as horror and science fiction, mm-hmm, but there mm-hmm. were Western pulps. Yeah. There were love pulps. There yeah. were all sorts of, of, of pulps. And Argosy was basically all of them. So uh, among uh, some of the Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, some of the John Carter stuff are first published in Argosy. Uh, in the 50s, some of... Uh, the first U.S. public of the James Bond short stories mm-hmm. are going to be in Argosy. So they have everything, all type of thing, including a guy named Fred Jackson. Yeah. Ever hear of Fred Jackson? Does he have another name? Uh, not that I know. Okay. He wrote, he wrote this terrible, awful over the top melodramatic love story, uh, love stories. Okay. Just terrible cheesy stories. And you know how there were, you know how there are internet trolls now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there were trolls back then. Okay. They didn't have the internet. Yeah. What they would troll was the writing section oh. of these pulp magazines. Uh-huh. And there was this one guy who lived with his mom, literally like his mom's sewing room. And he was this ultra-right conservative. He was just this huge troll. Mm-hmm. And this troll, he never, he literally would not leave his house during the daytime. Yeah. Uh, and he was such a troll, uh, ultra-conservative. And so he started writing. Every time they published these Fred Jackson stories, he started writing these really childish poems making fun of it. And Argosy would publish every time he did that. Oh, gee. Do <laughs> you know what the guy's name is? No. H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, gee. So, so, that's H.P. Lovecraft's first publishing. Yeah. You know, he'd done some writing, but the president of the Amateur Press Society falls in love with these troll writings that Lovecraft is writing and he hunts him down and he says, Hey, you're such a great writer. What you write, I want you to publish in my magazine. And that's where we get stuff like the cave uh-huh. and Dagon. Huh? That's what brought Lovecraft back to writing. Oh, wow. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Because he was now, he does change a little bit. He so he's not as bad a conservative troll in 1918 as he is, say, in 
uh, I mean, in 1936 as he is in 1918. He yeah. does grow, he matures, uh -huh. he, he gets rid of some of his more alt-right ideas and yeah. becomes actually, a, you know, a, a uh, New Deal, Roosevelt Democrat. Um, but yeah, if it, if it was not for Argosy and if it was not for Fred Jackson mm -hmm. and Lovecraft basically writing these poems mocking him, mm -hmm. and they are childish mockings, huh. uh, and someone hunting him down, we wouldn't have Lovecraft. Huh. Interesting. Now, Lovecraft, of course, is going to become one of the major writers in the pulp scene. Oh, for weird um, fiction, at least. For weird, yeah. And he's basically going to be saved because of the right of, of, um, of Arkham House. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's going to basically save his writing. Um, but we're going to have a lot of other people. Robert E. Howard. And so Robert E. Howard actually... He did Conan. He did quite a few things. He actually made more money writing Western comedies huh. than he did Conan. Yeah. That's where, towards the end of his life. And that was one thing Howard had. Um, he understood markets in a way Lovecraft understood art. Mm -hmm. How, already Howard understood markets. And he was able to jump from market to market, finding people. Uh, the one thing that he and Lovecraft, and they both wrote a couple stories, but never really picked up, they never got into the hard science fiction. Mm -hmm. But you think of the names that did come out of the hard science fiction, uh, Isaac Asimov, mm -hmm. uh, Ray Bradbury, they were all come out of these the, these pulp traditions. Huh. Crazy And they stuff. basically, yeah, they, they rose out of the pulp writers to... Two major writers. Nice. Nice. So, yeah, that's pretty um, cool stuff. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the pulp, though, begins to die after World War II. Mm -hmm. And it's just, we've got radio, and then we'll get television. And, and it, it's fair to say in some way that after a generation after going out and fighting a war, mm -hmm. they, they, they just, their tastes changed. Yeah. Their, their interests changed. Um, and so there's still going to be pulps of the 50s or 60s. I mean, to be honest, you know, there's, there's pulps now, mm -hmm. but they're more of a specially niche audience. Yeah. But so by, by the time the 60s, you know, they pretty much hit been replaced by television. Mm -hmm. But we're going to get a lot of pulp people who are looking for a job. And this includes uh, uh, Donald Wandry, mm -hmm. uh, it's Julius Swartz. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Julius Swartz, or Julius Swartz, we call him Julius, who later on they would, the pulps dried up. They would migrate to DC and Marvel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that, and we'll see a lot of it. Uh, and you know, Donald Wandry will basically run DC for a while. Hmm. So a lot of that pulp influence uh, will go to comic books. Okay. 
and, and we'll also see some of it will go into TV. Yeah. Uh, they'll do the Western serial, especially 50s, 60s TV. You know, they even carry on things like Batman. But, you know, if you look at a lot of the TV shows uh, in the 50s, you know, even Lassie and Sky King, they, they seem to have this pulp influence. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always seen the, uh, like, uh, su- successor to pulps uh, besides comic books, which are, like, kind of like a almost immediate successor to uh, the pulps but uh b movies b movies being like uh shot on like uh just like cheap stock and like just played wherever like grindhouse films and even well, before grindhouse films like just like um just like cheap monster movies just made for a a quick buck in like the 50s and such roger corman yeah yeah or even before that, you know, like, uh, who did Robot Monster or, like, Manos, Hand of Fate, and that kind of stuff? We need Derek. We need... With a bat. Yeah, yeah. We need Derek here. <laughs> Monster Kid Radio. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, no, no. I, uh, the schlock films like that is always... I've, I've always seen, like, kind of like... Uh, like I don't know, it has kind of like the same like rock'em, sock'em kind of energy as like a lot of pulps did, and also kind of like that, like a quickly made and <laughs> under duress. So, so, uh, so a couple of things I want to talk about that, but sure, sure. Of the ultimate, mm-hmm. the ultimate pulp movie, which is a work of art and a work of love, mm-hmm. is The New Hope. Yes, yes. I mean, and, and Lucas is, is very, you know, say, the, the Flash Gordon serials and mm-hmm, John Carter mm-hmm. Mars. And these are the things that influenced me. Oh, so, yeah. you know, yeah, we, we definitely see A New Hope as being extremely pulpy. Sure, yeah, yeah. But one other thing, and, and you're absolutely right that that's one of the things is this cheap paper and the there was so much need for writing, so much space now that people just, first of all, it allowed people like Robert E. Howard could make a living off of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they needed so much. And so you're right. You know, Sturgeon's Law, 90% of anything is crap. So there's yeah. a lot of crap stories there. But we also get... John Campbell, who wrote um, uh, Who Goes There, mm-hmm. which was made into you know the thing for our space. Yes. John Campbell is another person who is not a not a good person. Okay. But he had an engineering background. He was a great writer, and he had an engineering background. And he comes up and he says, "That's it, guys. We're not going to be just you know the the laughing stock anymore. We're going to not do things with spelling errors and grammar errors. We're going to have plots. And so he puts this engineering mind to things like plot structure. It says, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to be printed in my magazine after he took over, you know, uh, you know, amazing stories, you're going to not have things like characters disappear. You're going to tell complete stories you are going to have you know plot you're going to have character development you're not going to have misspelled words in the middle of the paragraph and it, <laughs> focused, it forced all the other pulps to raise their game yeah 
but but you know there there's still going to be some cheap mass quick produced stuff but it, he definitely took it to from a, a basically a, you know terrible terrible grammar and, and no plot and brought it up to something that Azimov and Bradbury could graduate out of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's cool. Very cool. So, so the, you know, so, you know, and I'm sure we're going to discuss a lot more about the pulps and, you know, about uh, movies based on the pulps. But, oh, you know, yeah. that's just really, honestly, one of my favorite genres is, is, is the pulps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So, uh, is is that what we have for now, or do you have anything else for tonight? I think we'll uh, maybe uh, we'll save uh, save save it up a little bit. Ooh, sounds cool. All right. So up next, uh, we've got an interview with who? So this is going to be uh, Eric Fuentes, who Ooh. I've known for several decades, been on several panels with, and he is going to talk about a or with me. We're going to talk about an actual mystery that could have been out of the pulp and pulp style um, books and 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 uh, articles have been written about and that's the black dahlia whoa cool that's gonna be fun to listen to all right and that's coming up next so listen to that and then after that I think you and I are gonna be talking about mysteries in Dungeons and Dragons or how to do a mystery in Dungeons and Dragons, or how not to do a mystery in Dungeons and Dragons, but that or after... are we? Listen <laughs> or... all the way through to find out. Yeah. <laughs> but no, listen, listen to the next part. It's going to be cool. All right, and we'll see you after all that in just a moment. You're listening to KZOM, only on the public radio. Welcome back to Radio Free Oleander. This is the Farmer Dave Show. And we have a special guest for you today. And that is Eric Fuentes. And I've literally known Eric for over two decades. And I don't know if you uh, listeners remember a couple of months ago, uh, just off topic, uh, Daniel and I were talking about how to hide a body. And then we started kind of, well, justifying it because we, you know, we're watching uh, YouTube and about how much we loved uh, classic Hollywood crimes. And then Eric reached out to us uh, on Facebook and he said, you know, if you wanted to talk about the Black Dahlia, which I, I brought up as an example, he would love to do it. So um, I'm going to let Eric introduce himself. Hi, guys. I'm Eric. Actually, I think you guys are talking about it. And then um, I, I kind of suggested it. I think I was, I was thinking that you had somebody um, in mind, or maybe one, you know either one of you were specialists in that um, in that story. Um, but yeah, no, I'm pleased to do this. I, I'm, I'm pleased to talk about what I know, what I've learned from various sources. So, so I got my I got my degree in history from UCLA. So I studied it as part of Los Angeles history. So I think I know a little bit more than maybe, say, the average person, but I think you might have a little bit more details than I do. So, sort of. I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, how, how, how was it first introduced to you? Where, where did you first learn about this? 
Um, I've always been a strange, <laughs> I've always been a strange kid. Um, I've always, um, got, so I used to go to the library every month with my mom. She took me to the library every single month and my, my, um, my tastes grew into, uh, some of the more occult or abnormal, uh, stuff. I, I just remember a lot of librarians checking out checking me out and my books with my mom next to me and both of them looking at my books as they checked each one of them out and then looking at me and then looking at each other and then looking back at me. Um, so I don't know. I've just always had a fascination. Plus growing up in Southern California, it's kind of, it is part of our history, which is funny that you say that you, you studied that, that you touched on this on, um, while studying Los Angeles history, because it really very much is Los Angeles has, sort of its own it's 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 a, it's, a, it's an entity and so when you look you when you when you study history of los angeles you're studying a, 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 a culture like a whole culture it's just it's just different it's not and i don't know if you would get it if you're not from there and i, I don't want to say that but i definitely have a hard time um aligning with other people outside of los angeles that haven't uh lived there or aren't from there um so to, yeah as an important yeah. Street. No, no, it, it definitely has, a, I think, what they call a, a genus loci. It's the spirit of the place. Yeah. It, it, it's a spirit of history. Uh, you know, Portland has one, Seattle, New York. There's a lot of cities, but but y- you have to experience. You can learn it. You can study it. But y- you almost have to experience living it somewhere in that greater Southern California area. Right. And I think that it's a little bit more um, pronounced being as we had the film industry uh, documenting every single part of it and being involved in it, like very closely involved in it. When you talk about noir, I mean, there, we've got a lot of stories that we can draw from just from the uh, old Hollywood days, you know, the glamour days of Hollywood. So, like, you know, Lana, Lana Turner um, and then this case here itself, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that went on in under the um or behind the, the curtains you know of, of glamour there was a lot of seediness going on absolutely and in some cases we learned about it decades later right absolutely you know i learned first about this case uh, i was at ucoa and about at the same time um unsolved mysteries did a thing on it one of the guys writing in the daily bruin who had a, a weekly article he wrote about it and that was my first i mean i was on my periphery that there was that unsolved uh, mysteries episode but what he wrote that was really my first real deep dive into the details yeah um okay um maybe uh before we get too far um i think most people have heard of this case but a lot of people may not listening today so um maybe did you want to start off talk about a little bit about the case and how it began sure yeah um so one January morning, um, this woman and her, uh, her child were walking down the street. And this is in uh, a little bit south of um, of um, downtown L.A. and uh, in the Elysian Park neighborhood. And she was walking on the sidewalk and a little ahead of her, she noticed a body. And at first she thought it was just a drunk homeless person. So she went to her neighbor's house and called the police and, and reported a drunk homeless person passed out on the street. Um, back then, a lot of the reporters had uh, radios that were 
high tech radios that were able to pick up on these calls uh, from the dispatchers to um, any of the cars out uh, in, the, in the neighborhood or nearby. And so um, it wasn't very it was very common for reporters to show up on the scene sometimes before the cops did. And, that, and that's what happened here in this case as well. That's why we're able to find the photographs that we have of the actual body. But um, upon re- uh, getting to the the, um, the location of the crime, she uh, it was discovered that it was not a homeless person, obviously, and that it was, uh, in fact, um, the body of a young girl. Um, but there was a lot of... Um, It was a lot of weirdness surrounding the way that her body was um, positioned. And that's why I guess that along with the name at the time, because, you know, back then, um, like a a headline would catch people. People relied heavily on the news, on newspapers and and, uh, and reporters and so forth. So a tagline would would sell a lot, you know. And so the name, the Black Dahlia was coined and... um, the positioning of her body also was uh, was really interesting. She was only literally inches away from the sidewalk where this little kid was walking uh, with his mom. It's, it's just really strange. And, and this was in 1947. Yeah, 1947. Now, now you, you mentioned the, the name, and I've heard there's different theories about where the name Black Dahlia came from. Uh, the victim's real name was uh, Elizabeth Short. Elizabeth Short, yep. But uh, I've heard several different theories on where uh, the term Black Dahlia had come from. Uh, do you have some, or what were some ones that you maybe heard? Um, I forgot, to be honest with you. But um, according to the FBI... The first part of it was because of her, the, the way that she, she liked to wear black clothes. And then um, there was also some photographs of her, some only, you know, like there was very few photographs of Elizabeth Short. And in one of them, she wore a white, um, a white flower. And I'm not sure, it, it wasn't a Dahlia, but it was just a white flower in her hair. And so they ju- the um, reporters just kind of put those together and just called it Black Dahlia. But there's, I mean, it could be any. There were some theories tying back to um, to one of the suspects and his penchant for flowers, and so it, it could have and, been it, really. And there's there's a theory that I've always liked is that released at the same time was a Alan Ladd Veronica Lake movie called The Blue Dahlia, oh, and no. and it's often thought because no one's sure where which reporter came up with the term, but you're, you're right, more than likely it was from the newspaper. I've always thought that there's possibility that maybe the the reporter who came up was influenced by that that uh, Veronica Lake uh, Alan Ladd movie. Yeah, I've never seen that movie. Um, have you? I've not seen that one. Uh, I, I've okay. Confession time. <laughs> confession time. I probably shouldn't. Veronica Lake is the most beautiful woman who ever lived. Yeah, she was beautiful. She really was. Oh. Just okay, so okay, so if, yeah, that's okay. Farm, um, Farmer Dave's opinion. <laughs> Farmer Dave, um, have you seen LA Confidential? Yes, yes, I have. Okay, cool. Yeah, that um, it's very this case reminds me, it puts me in the same mindset that that movie does, and it's a it's it's a mood that I think a lot of us like to revisit. Yeah. 
D- didn't the writer of the book L.A. Confidential also write the book Black Dahlia? Um. Oh God. Uh, what's his I name? Think so. Um. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He wore. He wrote. Um. The Black Dahlia. T- uh, yeah. James uh, Elroy. I, yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 He yeah. did. Um. What were you gonna say? No. No. I. I, I think that that they're definitely. I think he. I think you definitely see a lot of inspiration and spirit, and he he draw drew off of in L.A. Confidential to yeah. the LAPD at the time. And yes, it, it's got to. It, it has to be said that seventy years ago, the Los Angeles Police Department. I hate to use the word corrupt, but you know well, the shoe yeah. probably fits. No, it, it really was corrupt, and that's why this murder um, happening when it did is it, unfortunate because 70 years later, we're still talking about it. I mean, here we are having a podcast <laughs> um, episode based on this murder that's still unsolved, despite um, a lot of evidence. However, be- because of corruption within the LAPD and the um, them trying to uphold their reputation as, you know, like the best um, police department around uh, or ever. Um, they, And also because there was a lot of accessible crime to be had with the um, with, with police back then and, and in, in the police department in L.A. So a lot of people were involved in a lot of things. And to get, to let that be exposed meant huge reform. And in fact, this case kind of shook it up so that some changes started happening afterward. Yeah, in fact, one of them is, and you're maybe going to bring that up, is the idea of a, a sex offenders registry came out of this case. Yeah, uh-huh. a lot of things came out of this uh, out of this case, or not in, not directly, but indirectly. Or, or it influenced, yes, you're right, indirectly, yes. So, and, and not to derail your thought, I want to go back there, but I, I had a thought this morning when I was thinking about you know this interview, I go, this is kind of the moment Los Angeles lost its innocence. This yeah. is the sort of this is the sort of and, and again, you have to really sort of understand LA history and, and what LA became, but and and not that there weren't terrible crimes before, but I and even there were some public crimes, but this I think was the moment that LA lost its innocence. Yeah, um, I think it like I said, it did a strong, uh, a really good job of um, upholding an image um, until around you know the four, the mid forties, not the late forties and the early fifties, because of all the um, exposures to to corruptness, especially having taken up so publicly. I mean, it took something like this murder being so gruesome to be so highly publicized, right? Um, for them to start having some prying eyes on what's going on because it was, we had, um, they started out with 22 suspects to, to not, I mean, that just, you know, says how much um, mishandling of evidence and information there was, if not uh, purposely being kept um, and, and um, you know, leveraged for other things. Yeah, yeah, and, and and 
LA definitely Hollywood LA it was a it was a company town the studios had a lot of and they wanted to control this image of Hollywood um, and they definitely work with the police to try to keep that image right because if you had um, if you had Ma- Amar on the on the location to say that that's where you know these kinds of murders happen or this kind of corruption exists I don't think that um, it wouldn't be a viable place to go start for, for any young person that's, who wanted to start a career to just want to just go to you know what I mean it's like it, it has to present a, a, a an image of uh, prosperity and and wholesomeness in order for them to want to go there. Otherwise, no one's going to want to go. And, and Elizabeth Short sort of bought in. She wanted to be an actress, correct? Yeah, she she came. Yeah, she did want to be an actress. She came from the Midwest, and she um, had been married um, to uh, someone in the in the forces. I forgot what his rank was, but. He died, and so she came out here. She also had um, allergies, and so part of her reasoning to be uh, to come to LA or to Southern California was because of her allergies. And so she oh, did. Have, um, yeah, she she wanted to be a star, um, but she was also very young uh, in mind. Um, she didn't really put things into concrete. Um, didn't put much effort really into that career and she just kind of got lost in the social aspect of things and and unfortunately the under the underbelly of social life um but it's so it's growing up in, in southern california and listening or knowing of certain spots to hear them intertwine with the story of elizabeth shorts it's just it just kind of um i think that's why i'm fascinated with it with it because there's only so many degrees of separation you know besides time and um, because geography, I, I know some of these spots that she frequented and I know, um, I mean, I think a lot of us do. It's not like exclusive to me. I'm just saying, I think that's where the appeal came from. No, oh no, absolutely. And, and I don't think, uh, you know, it's the, like, uh, or the, it was the Lament Park District, right? Or, or, but, you know, I don't think people who go by there, they don't, even if it's not, I don't mean ghost, her ghost, like a, a spirit ghost, the history, I think it's there. And oh, yeah. Maybe a spirit, I don't know. But 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 yeah, haunted, not capital H, ghost haunted, haunted by history. Absolutely. Uh, Los Angeles is haunted and haunted by ghost history by Elizabeth Short. Absolutely. Yeah, she had... Um... She was a party girl, you know, and she was young she, with no supervision. And um, I think she wanted, uh, I mean, this is just me based, you know, based on my assumption, but I think she was not very much unlike me. I, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places and uh, trying to have as much fun on the way there. Right. And so um, the, like, uh, I, I don't now, mean this is disrespectful, but do you think she was naive? Oh, yes. I think she was very much naive, um, very much naive and uh, with a huge deficit of self-worth. Um, that, I, I mean, I think that's given the given the circumstantial evidence to what she was involved in. Um, I think that that's the only I mean, that's the only conclusion I can make. So she um, she also 
she had her the only reason that I could identify her um, was through her fingerprints and they got those from a previous arrest um, from a few years prior I think it was like five years before for underage drinking um, so like she's just she's been in the scene she was in the scene for a little while but she was still I think not naive in the case where where she didn't have enough knowledge but I think she just was um, a, a dreamer that's what okay. I yeah, she was so lofty because she was in her dreams of finding uh, a, a man that would take care of her, if not a career. Right. But uh, again, she didn't put that much effort into the career as she did um, from one man to another and to another. So, so uh, let me, I kind of, yes, that she was a degree of street smart, but she so was optimistic that it yeah. would work out that maybe she put herself in a dangerous way even though she did have some some street smarts yeah i i mean i've met a lot of people like that and i i i feel like sometimes and, and given my history i feel like i completely understand what 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 that would look like so it's no to me, it doesn't. If, if there was going to be, and and so there was talk about a serial killer or serial killers happening, um, or being active during this time, and so a person like that would be prime uh, target, you know, for prey. Someone who's thirsty and desperate has a has a longing for something. They're easy to capitalize on, and so to lure them into, I don't know, some some create, you know, some. Uh, off the wall kind of ideas and then gain their trust and then you know subsequently murder them i think that's yeah plausible now you had said that there were originally 22 suspects um, yeah you feel that that they've done a pretty good job narrowing it down to one correct there were three that were like the main suspects um one of them he had a date with her um like I think the night of or, or prior to her murder, um, but he was ruled out, and also the, the LAPD kind of covered his uh, him being um, the suspect because he, he killed himself. So the LAPD didn't want to um, call someone who who's dead uh, the murderer because that would be called that would be considered bad policing. And again, we're going to go back to LAPD's. Um, stronghold on their reputation back then and right here and it's coming it's coming undone at the seams so any any little deviance from their pristine or not even pristine but their reputation as they saw it um they would try to squash it so um they never really handled the evidence on uh ed burns very well so they they, they ruled him out and then um Leslie Dillon was also considered um, her murderer, but um, there was lack of concrete evidence, so they didn't really follow. They didn't pursue him very much. And, and he was the person that gave her a ride, right? Um, no, that was Ed Burns. Oh, okay. Burns, Ed Burns, and he's the one that gave her a ride. Yeah, and he had. They identified him by a picture, um, but even even the picture wasn't really that. It wasn't able to be used as evidence. Um, so Leslie Dillon was also another one. And then lastly, it's 
George Hodel. And a lot of people have, since the since I first picked up this book about 17 years ago, um, the, I'm, I'm speaking of The Black Dahlia Avenger by Steve Hodel. Um, since I picked up the book, I have read other um, reviews of the book, and there's a lot of people that don't feel that it's credible, but um, more and more evidence, even after um, publishing, um, have kind of um, supported Steve's claims of his father um, being the, the murderer. There's just there's just too much. When you read the book, I feel like I don't understand how anyone could not make that same connection, but apparently they they do. And and I I appreciate those objective looks. Um, I just um, I don't know. Maybe I guess. I'm also enamored with the glamour of this story, and I just want some conclusion. I don't know. But, so, so you're you're saying that that the the evidence seems to withstand the the test of time. Yeah, it's all circumstantial, though. I mean, there's no concrete evidence, obviously. Otherwise, we would have a, uh, a name. But all of this that that Steve Hodel presents in his book is circumstantial, so it's really hard. And also, his wording in the book makes it hard to make him a credible source. However, his history, uh, first-hand history, along with um, supporting, uh, circumstantial albeit, but uh, supporting um, evidence, kind of just, I don't know, maybe it's because I want an end to the story and I want some closure, but I I agree with him. I, I don't see how it cannot be his father, given what he states in his book. And and I will agree. I will agree with you. It's very persuasive. I, I think his arguments are very persuasive. I'm still a little skeptical, and maybe I'm a little skeptical because I'm the exact opposite. Maybe there's part of me that wants to keep that mystery going. But oh. but I will. Even though I'm skeptical, yeah. I admit I think he he I think he's developed a very strong circumstantial case. I, yeah, I can't. I can't. Um, <laughs> I can't say I align with you on that one. I just don't know. I like for me. I like conclusions. I like to wrap things up, and and I also like to identify and label things. Right. Um, sure. I, there's no right or wrong answer to that. Right. That's just where we're, we're just we just know each other well enough that we're able to say where we both come from. Yeah. Um, you know, around the same time. In fact, one month later, there was another murder, also gruesome. Um, Oh God! It was uh, it's called the uh, red lipstick murder, um, and that was um, they started to look at maybe the possibility of a serial killer because that that person that victim was also um, murdered kind of you know grotesquely. Um, do you know anything about the red lipstick murder? I know that it happened, and that I know that people have tied it together, but I don't know a lot of the details. Okay. Um, I'm just pulling something up here real quick because I did not make notes on that one. Um, but basically, it was literally like four weeks after um, the discovery of, um, of Elizabeth Short's body, and so they—that's when they started to think that they, maybe they had, they had a serial killer on um, on the loose, if not serial killers. Um, very scream. Uh, as you know, having two people, but Steve, in in Steve's developing story on his dad, um, 
he paints a picture of this man who is very um uh, he was an egomaniac and he uh, uh, thought highly of himself his parents also really kind of raised him as if he was some kind of prince or something but they they came from um humble beginnings and um Russian Jewish Russian um background and uh George went on to have many different careers even before he became a full-fledged adult by 17 he had already had um several things under his um under his belt um for example let's see he had already been oh so in the, when he was a young boy he was a musical genius and so he was a prodigy and he was and so that's why his parents treated him as such he was very very intelligent in fact he got uh he scored on the um uh during this time during the time of George's growing up he went to um school and uh, I forgot who it was but the professor that created the IQ test he um started studying a few different um young people including George and because of that that's where we got the IQ test and the, the term gifted um so George Odell tested one point uh, above Einstein. That's how that's how intelligent this man was, and um, he becomes a doctor. He does become a doctor, but before that, he was a cab driver in L.A. He was a cab driver in all the streets. He knew you know his surroundings very very well. He was an editor of his own um, published literary magazine, um, which only had like two like two um publishings really and it was um so a lot of things that point to his psyche stem from his childhood and the things that he liked to do for example the name of this of his uh magazine was called Fantasia or something like that and um there's a book by Heck um that also oh god what I'm failing to remember the name I probably should have written this wrote this written this down hang on hang on a second um Yeah, I forgot what the, the name of the book was, but he um in the book it described this this uh man who hated women and then he kind of imagined a woman that he killed um and he did so because he allowed himself to like go to those depths um in in his imagination. And so things like that kind of backed up some of the claims that um Steve made about his father George also and, and one to get also is the fact that he was a doctor that the the cuts were so surgically precise well yeah or, or is, is that a myth is, is that a myth well it was precise but there were also uh, there was a reason behind some of the um I mean we're we're speaking as if I'm speaking as if I am um, I'm just going to speak as if okay because I don't want to okay. but He was really good friends with Man Ray. Uh back then Man Ray was a very an artist. Yeah, an artist. He was a photographer and a real artist and a poet and so on and so forth, but he was also a sadist and he was very public about his um disdain for authority and for and he shared in um in Marquis Marquis um idea of women being made for men's pleasure only. And so because of that to make them the most the most useful and i'm kind of like not 
most I'm my most articulate right now, and I apologize. But to make a woman most useful is to um, to subject her to humiliation, and the best kind of humiliation was uh, done through pain. And so they were actually um, hard carrying members of the Marquitas Hey Sade um, fan club. I mean, this is what this is what they were working with. You know, this is the mentality that they worked on. And George went on to he 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 had four wives in his lifetime. His first wife, Dorothy, she actually bore him two kids, one of which was a daughter. And uh, I'll come back to her. But then he had um, he also married another woman who he convinced to um, move to Arizona, and that's where. Um, in Arizona, while he was in Arizona, he purchased a house in L.A. The house that he purchased in L.A. is the one um, by Lloyd Wright. It's it's been used in a lot of movies, like West, uh, well, TV shows too. Westworld most recently had that on there. It's that house that has the the, the like Aztec type bricks. I'm mm-hmm. sure it's on TV or movies. Um, yeah, I, you can look it up. I think it's called a uh, God, the Sodden House. Here, I'll take a look. Um, anyway, that's where George um, and his wife Dorothy, his second wife, her name was Dorero. He um, he renamed her because he had a previous wife named Dorothy. So the previous wife had the daughter. Then he married Dor- Dorero, and who he had he had been um, seeing her prior to his first uh, marriage. And in in that time, she was actually. She went off to go marry um, John Houston, Angelica Houston's dad. John Houston's father, William Houston, was also in the in the industry. Well, John Houston also shared in that mentality about women. Um, in any case, they each had their own relationships, their own marriages, and then um, they both got divorced and they came back together. And Dorero and and George had um, the four boys that Steve. Um, calls his brothers. One of them was a twin brother who died early on, um, and then the other brothers were um, not really relevant in the story until much later on. But he um, he he did eventually accept his daughter from the previous marriage, uh, Tamar, to come stay with him at his house in L.A. Tamar was 14 years old and. She eventually ran away, and the cops picked her up, and they asked her why she ran away. And she said, because I'm afraid, and, and they asked her why she was afraid. And she said, because I don't want to be part of those sex parties anymore. It came to light, and this is a huge scandal, um, a, a real trial that happened with George Odell being the main suspect, or the, the defendant. Um, apparently, they had a lot of sex parties in and around uh, 1940. Six through 1949, um, and um, at that at that house, a lot he there was a lot. It was very bohemian and nihilistic, and there was a lot of sex. And, and um, he, it just came to light that George did, you know, have um, an incestuous relationship with his own daughter, and even kind of like had her uh, perform sex with other of his friends, including. Uh, uh, Fred, what's his name here? Hold on a second. His uh, Fred Sexton. So Fred Sexton is 
here. Let me see. Although a lot of people at that time didn't believe her. No, because they were trying, even her mom, her mom and her grandmother and other boys from San Francisco where she grew up, um, they discredited her uh, publicly on, on trial in the stand. Um, and so they just concluded that she was just um, a, uh, a liar. A liar. Yeah. And so that never really, it, it, it didn't give any credibility to her. And, and, he, and George was spared. However, the whole reason for that happening was also probably because the LAPD was trying to cover up. Um, what they were trying to cover up, we don't know, but he had um, a working relationship with them. So, yeah, so he, oh, I, I don't mind. I'm sorry to interrupt, but so he was the doctor that was over the venereal disease clinic of Los Angeles. So he had yeah. a ver- very tight working relationship with the LAPD. Not only that, he had a lot of um, exposure to women, young women who were living this lifestyle which so to speak um one you know like a very um not conformative lifestyle back then so yeah it was and, he, uh, and as as he may have had evidence that police officers had certain diseases that they didn't want to get out in public um not just that he had a lot of other tie-ins as well but um he also had an extensive background with um being he was like he had been selected to be a representative for the u.s in china they actually moved him out there um and when you're out there you have to have some sort of military ranking in order to be the voice or um to be the authority on certain things such as he did with uh being the 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 authority on uh, medical practice out there and so he was um, awarded, he had to wear like military outfits and so on and so forth. When he got back from, from China, he, he still kept that and he, he actually liked to dress, in, dress up in it. Some of the reportings of um, Elizabeth Short's um, dates were with a guy that wore military clothes. In fact, that's what she liked because she was married to, to one who died. And so... Um, she also mentioned uh, his name to a, uh, a friend of hers. Um, so, it so to me it seems that Fred Sexton, who actually was an artist as well, Fred Sexton was an artist, and he created the Maltese Falcon um, statuette for the movie. Um, so that gives you an idea of how intertwined with Hollywood this really was. Not only that, we have John Huston uh, that's in there as well, and. Um, and later on, we even have what's her name from the Mamas and the Papas, who was very good friends with Tamar. Um, but Fred Sexton and George would would frequent a lot of bars and meet a lot of women. Um, and I, I think that what they did were, was basically find these uh, young women who were were uh, prone to you know, live or, or, or say yes to certain things. And uh, given their, the way that they believed women were supposed to be, I think that that's how it might have gotten out of hand. She, uh, Elizabeth Short herself was uh, noticeably on edge during the last weeks of her life. Um, and by that point, she had already um, 
she had already mentioned that she had been seeing somebody uh, in the military, and but she was seeing a lot of other guys as well. Yeah. But this one in particular, his name is George. Um, there, uh, a witness remembers her being uh, really frantic and trying to get ready, and she's saying, "He's waiting for me," but she never really said who he, uh, who it was, and um, so. And, and I think that the reason why I wanted to bring up the the way that her body was was because in his association with Man Ray, um, Man Ray's own uh, psyche along with his art. George idolized him basically and in fact Man Ray and, and his wife and George and Steve's mother um, were such good they were good friends um, the four of them in fact there's pictures of Dorero and um, Man Ray's wife uh, in the book but also they participated in you know some sexual stuff together and um George's mom herself was admittedly bisexual, and she also liked, um, you know, to live like that. And, but she just uh, Steve's, Steve's mom. Steve's mom. Yes, I apologize. Steve's mom. Um, but um, some of the paintings that Man Ray has and um, his artwork, it, there are. There's one called the um, Minotaur, Minotaur, and in that there is a woman's body, and it's cut in half just like um, Elizabeth Short's body had been. The body that they found, uh, Elizabeth Elizabeth Short's body was drained of blood, was drained of blood and was brushed clean. Um, as And the way that they cut her uh, midsection, um, they also kind of, they did it as if they were doing a hysterectomy. But this was happened, this happened after she was dead. Um, they, they drained her blood. They also uh, washed her hair afterward, which is kind of weird as well. Um, in his paintings, he has a woman, a woman's torso with the breast kind of removed, not just the nipple, but like most of the breast removed. And um, Elizabeth Short's body was mutilated the same way. And ultimately, there was a painting by Man Ray as well that has uh, these lips. They're like flying lips, and they were really um, long, elongated. And um, the way that George and Man Ray seemed to kind of worship each other, it, to me, it would make sense that in a way, this is his... This is his way of paying homage to his friend. His, um, his tribute to Man Ray. Yeah, tribute. Yeah, that's that's a good word. I think that's what what he was doing ultimately because of their shared beliefs in in um, uh, in sadism and um, and also at this point he had already um, endured and and came on top of the um, that scandal with his own daughter because um, he did well. The killer did eventually start taunting the LAPD with he he, he he mailed them things, correct? Yeah, he would he mailed them um, postcards and and letters, and also that murder that I told you about that happened a month later um, on that woman's body. She had um, letters cut into her body. It said "fuck you," um, BD, uh, B, um, yeah, BDA, Black Dahlia Avenger. Um, the Avenger part being that he was making right something that that he was wronged for, um, and so 
excuse me. So that's why they um, they did rule him out of that for some reason. I, I don't really know the um, all the details about that, but um, because of because of a murder that happened in between the two, this um, this this guy that worked at a print shop. He killed his um, his own boss and he dismembered him into six pieces. And they were about to put pin it on him, and someone um, published it. And what that did was piss off the actual killer because of, yeah. uh, the person that murdered Elizabeth Short, no doubt wanted notoriety. He wanted to. It, it was his ego that was at stake here, so he needed to have that, and he needed these people to make a big fuss over it. And see and, how and you know, di- didn't he mail Short's uh, social security card to the police? I don't remember that. I haven't. No, I don't know. Oh, oh, I, I think he did, and I think what the other thing is that he soaked it in gasoline, and oh. so that shows some evidence that the person had some basic scientific forensic background, which again puts possibly a doctor. They did identify the the letters being ri- or the um, postcards being written with a ballpoint pen, a new one. Um, back then, ballpoint pens cost about a hundred and some dollars. Mm. So, not everyone had a ballpoint pen back then, and it was somebody who would have the money, but also to use it. It's again, he, the, that person did like to taunt the LAPD. And the L.A. George Hodel definitely was on the LAPD's radar to enough oh, yeah. that they they bugged his house. They what? They bugged his they house. They bugged yeah. his house, and Not they at the, uh, yeah. Go ahead. And there's supposed to have been some rather controversial, uh, or rather some um, some self-incriminating things that he said. But one of the problems, and we find this, not only this, but also in the Robert Kennedy case, Robert Kennedy should be open and shut, but the LAPD had a bad habit of any case that made them look bad of destroying the evidence as soon as they could. Yeah. Yeah, one of the people that came up, came forward, and because a lot of people confessed to that crime, um, and... One of them was uh, Daniel Voorhees. Uh, and I just think it's so funny that his last name is Voorhees, which sure. is the same yeah. last name they use for Jason um, in the um, uh, Friday the 13th movies. I wonder if there's any connection or, or not. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, Hodel, George Hodel remains to be the biggest suspect. Um, That's right. I, I mean, I, I would, it, would, it would take a lot of time to go over everything that was um, mentioned in the book, but there's a lot of things that support the claim, including mostly his his psyche and his beliefs. And, and, and dead bodies did seem to follow him around. There was a, a, a similar murder in the Philippines when he lived in the Philippines. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, at this point, I just... Um, with all the... Because... When you, I can't say I'm an expert on on much, but I've I've lived a bohemian lifestyle once or twice, and I've lived amongst artists, but then I've lived, I think, 
and been really close to uh, I think some people that are that have dead set ideas about um, I don't want to say gender roles but maybe like sexual roles and I don't know just I, I feel a little bit I'm convinced I'm just convinced that that um, that uh, George Odell given his lifestyle his choices his uh, his history you know on paper um, I, I just feel like that really kind of points to him and, and I don't think there's any argument that he wasn't a that he was not a horrible person I mean definitely I think that and I think there's a lot of, I think absolutely there is a lot of circumstantial evidence I think it's good research it just doesn't quite and 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 I can see exactly where you're coming from so I, I'm not attacking it I think it's a, a very strong argument but I just I, I'm still a little skeptical I'm not I'm not a shadow of doubt, convinced by a shadow of doubt but honestly the evidence is strong the evidence is very good yeah and it's interesting to find how many connections in Hollywood it, it really has just like any just like any story that happens in LA back then um, you know like with um, Angelica Houston her father being a part of that and Angelica Houston being with Jack Nicholson who was best friends or who was really good friends with Polanski and what happened with Natasha Kinski and why he was exiled and so on and so forth and then, then you know the whole other side of um, of his uh, of his life, but um, that's I think that's why I'm mostly. If this murder were to happen, have happened, I think in Connecticut, I don't really know how much attention it would have garnered. You're you're absolutely right that there are certain crimes that are essential to that location that they're so tied in to the location and black dahlia is that to los angeles absolutely yeah i don't see how anyone can not know about it but in this last these couple weeks that we've been prepping for this uh podcast i've asked people and i don't know if it's because i'm in portland or maybe because it's just like dying out in in um popularity i i'm not sure but I couldn't find many people to talk about it with. So I thank you for letting me do this with you. Well, no, thank you for, for coming on. And I, I, I hope that, uh, you know, um, that maybe we've, you know, got somebody a little bit intrigued and wants to study. I mean, it's a terrible thing to start, but, you know, hopefully people will be interested in the history of it at least. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, it was a terrible thing, but there were some good things that did come out of it. Yeah, it was there was police reform, uh, right. the the sexual offend, offenders registry. This was something that moved to it. So even terrible things like this terrible murder, there's some there's still some good. Yeah, it was definitely a catalyst for change in uh, Hollywood, in and around Hollywood, not just in the industry, but the but. Um, it's societal. I mean, like you said, the um, sex registry, that's that's huge. Well, thank you so much for being part of this show. And uh, Again, uh, you're listening to the Farmer Dave Show on Radio Free Olean. Then we have... Hey, everybody, it's... 
D&D on D&D. Yes, it is. <laughs> how's it going there, Dave? How's, how's the world of D&D treating you these days? Uh, you know, the, I, I've got to say that the dice are not as rattling as much as I'd like them to with COVID and work and farm, but uh, it's, it's there. Oh, cool, cool, cool. I have to say, uh, instead of playing D&D, what I've been doing is, uh, are you familiar with the uh, Bethesda game Skyrim by any chance? I know that there is a game called Skyrim. <laughs> well, I've been playing it, and it's a lot of dungeons and a lot of dragons, but no, it takes place in a uh, world called, uh, in, a, in a country uh, land called Skyrim, and you're, you're something called the Dragonborn, and you run around jumping off of stuff, falling off of cliffs, dying, uh, getting attacked by wolves and bears, or at least that's how uh, I play the game. Uh, your play style may vary. <laughs> getting caught by guards, stealing, putting buckets on people's heads so that you can rob places, and just kind of running amok, being a, a good old-fashioned D&D murder hobo. But um, there is actually a plot line, but I never do that. I mean, like, there's some people who play Grand Theft Auto, and all they want to do is, like, jump cars off bridges. I'm the kind of person that likes to run amok without, not, not like murder mayhem, but just, like, kind of run amok in town, goof off and, like, uh, battle stuff and go, oh, okay, I can't remember what my character did last or what, my, what I have to do, but, you know. <laughs> for, all legal, for all legal officers <laughs> that are listening to this show... Uh, he only does this in virtual reality. Oh yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> there's, there's, there's really not enough, uh, not enough stuff in, in Oleander to run amok with. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so just, we're talking just in Skyrim. So we're talking about mysteries. Mysteries, yeah, 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 mysteries. And, and you know what? I think, I think, I mean. In a ways, D&D is not a game set up for mysteries. That's, and I, we'll talk a little bit of what. That's, that's but, the whole thing know, I was thinking good, about. Or, if that, you got a good, solid mystery, mm -hmm. it's a nice change from, you know, a, a sort of a, the, your, your Monty Hall, you know, uh, you know, Dungeon Dwell or Dell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Uh, something I was thinking about is D&D, &D, it's, it's a game engine is really not meant for mysteries. And it's one of those things, like 90% of the time, if I'm playing D&D, &D, uh, or if, if I'm uh, uh, the, uh, I keep wanting to say keeper, if I'm the DM of D&D, &D, I, I improvise like 90% of what's going on, unless it's a mystery, or unless it's like Challenge of the Champions, a bunch of puzzles and stuff like that, and it's very kind of like railroady. But generally, I just kind of like free associate a campaign, and everyone just has fun. But I can't do that with mysteries, and it's like, oh, what if I? And I, I, I've done it in the past, where it's like just copy a mystery that's already out there and hope no one saw the movie, or you know, copy a book and hope no one's read the book. Or a uh, real popular one, rip off an episode of DuckTales. Uh, <laughs> and... no, that's one of the greatest sort. There have been more adventures written on DuckTales oh, yeah, than yeah. anything else. Yes. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it, makes for a nice, it makes for a nice change. Sure. Um, and, and I'll tell you, here's my big problem, mm -hmm. and maybe with mysteries in D&D. 
magic. Yeah. And, and, and somewhere it's the fifth edition with uh, the the outer god warlock. You know, your your default power is to read minds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See, so that's one of the things you got to come up with ways that magic can. You know, they're not going to you know solve the mystery immediately by magic. Yeah, yeah. You know, and part part of that is you know your criminal mastermind. You know, they know magic exists, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so they can sort of counter it. You know, I was thinking like, you know, the 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 they get a a gnome to to make uh, constructs that commit the murder, mm-hmm. and then they kill the gnome. So you, so you capture the constructs, you can't read the minds. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Mi- the, thing, the thing I keep oh. thinking about is um, it's, 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 it's like you have to somehow create something that magic can't undo, like whether it be like detect evil or detect truth, detect lie. It's, it's like almost like you almost have to like make it so that the PCs or the uh, uh, the players are kind of like you have to help solve this, or you're gonna get locked up, or you're gonna have to you know you have to help solve this. Although you are a, a one of the main witnesses, because it's it's a problem I've had because it's like I just keep thinking about like. Um, it, you, you have to create so many contrivances just to, it's like, well, we need this to have this because magic could do this. And it's like, that's one thing about D&D that uh, you're totally right about, like with warlocks and with clerics and with mages and with sorcerers and dragons and <laughs> dungeons. And Anyway, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. No, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and, and in some ways, you know, if you're a DM and your, your party really wants to do uh, a mystery. You mm-hmm, say, hey, mm-hmm. we want a mystery. Yeah. You're almost better to do a one shot. Yeah, yeah, like a low level one shot. One shot, or, or at least where you prepared, you prepared the spells, or it's a low magic environment. One that I just thought of is like, like, um, say you have a, uh, they're, they're doing some sort of like dungeon crawl kind of thing, or like going through like an old castle or something like that. And it may not be part of, like, the main plot or something like that, but they see something like some kind of ghost that keeps interrupting or something like that, or they keep, and it's like, you know, maybe if we figure out what happened to this supernatural being, or, like, maybe, like, oh, heck, let's, let's go with, like, old Italian horror movies of, like, part of the plot is, like, trying to figure out, like, you know, you're there for something else, like, the king calls you in for something else, but there's like this huge underplot of like the king's actually a huge ass and like murdered his uh, son and something like that. And the ghost is like trying to be like, don't listen to the king, don't listen to the king or something like that, which then ends up some like bigger kind of thing of which, hey, we happen to have a cleric who can speak with undead. Now we can get the ball rolling. Knowing magic actually helps us figure out that there is a mystery. Just yeah. an idea. <laughs> yeah, no, or, 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 you know, you're doing a regular dungeon delve, and then there's a ghost there who was murdered, knows it was murdered, but uh-huh. didn't know who murdered it because yeah. it was, like, stabbed in the back. Sure. So it's, it's cursed the party. Yeah. And the only way that they can get the curse off is to 
to find the the murderer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or like say they go to some like big huge metropolitan town and they're in a bar or something like that and there's a huge fight and like people are like uh those people are the ones who killed the bartender and stuff like that and the mage general inspector type guy is like all right we're gonna put magic uh, restraints on you you can't leave this town or you'll get you'll just feel pain the whole time so you either have to help us figure out who killed this guy or you're just gonna be in pain the whole time or i don't know I'm sure listeners can write something a lot better than that. <laughs> or, or what I was thinking is, if you really still want to do a dungeon crawl, yeah, make the mystery find the map. Ooh, yeah. You know that you know somewhere, you know somewhere in this village or this castle, mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. A, a hidden map. You know, so you got your your prepaid dungeon call. But let's make, add a little bit on, make them make them work for it to find out where it is. Oh, that sounds good. And that way. And that way, well, if they, you know, oh, they they just, and that's the, the big thing. What if they luck out and solve the mystery in the first five minutes? Yeah. That, yeah. That's that's the big fear. That's but something. But if they solve it like, you still got the adventure. You still got the main adventure. Yeah. Something else I wanted to, like, talk about, like, D&D doesn't, like, quite, huh. Like, <clears throat> with D&D, with uh, mysteries, I feel like you kind of have to map out your mystery, like, almost, like, write it backwards and then be like, okay, if I have these clues, I'll have these clues over here, but these people involved with these clues way over here, so there has to be some walking around. (laughs) There has to be some traveling or splitting up of people, and if this person's nefarious and these people find out that, like, this is going on, we can do, like, okay, DM is like, now we cut over to here, where Derek's talking to Lethagrio. Oh, no, Lethagrio, we know he's the bad guy. And, you know, then there's some excitement when your bard is separated and with the scary bad guy who's, like, five levels more powerful than him or something like that. Yeah, and, and uh, no, I, I think that's a great idea. And the other thing is, is finding clues. And so oh, I yeah. actually did some research, and I, I, I read a couple articles, watched a few videos, mm-hmm. and everyone that I watched or read they talked about the Alexandrian law or the law of three. <coughs> and Excuse this me, was... hold on one second. <coughs> okay. Alexandrian law, law of threes. Let's, uh, where were we at? Yeah, so the, the Alexandrian law or the law of three. And this was from a, an old blog by someone named Alexander. It was called Alexandrian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he basically said, you want to run a mystery, you've got to have leave three clues for your players. Okay. For the same thing. So like if someone's get poisoned, you know, you got to maybe give them like, uh, you know, the poison victim has like purple lips and they mm-hmm. can make like a nature or health law a roll or, you know, there's a weird smell coming out of the bottle or, uh, you know, uh, uh, a rumor that, so, or a rumor that uh, the wine merchant wants him dead mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he says that if they find one clue they're just going to ignore. Yeah. Second clue, you know, they may get into a fight in it. And, you know, they may not find a third. So if you want them to go somewhere, you've got to give them at least three clues huh. to get to that new place. Okay. Huh. And, 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 and I mean, you know, the entire, the entire uh, you know, gumshoe system is based on the fact that, you know, 
you should not miss, you know, the evidence gathering role. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I have, you know, so let's say, you know, they make a, a role and they just they make a terrible role. They wouldn't find that clue hidden in the fireplace. Yeah. Well, maybe that they find it, but they're so distracted that they don't see, you know, the wandering monster come up behind them. Yeah. They still find the clue, but something else happens. Or maybe they don't see, you know, the villain looking through the window. So the, the villain now knows that they, they, know have, they have the a clue. clue. It also kind of makes your people paranoid. I found this at a, on a five, you know, is it real or? Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's it. You just, that's it. Cause it, they get to a point that, that if they don't find the clue, the adventure just stops. Yeah. 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 I've definitely had that happen with uh, call of Cthulhu where people just weren't finding things. It's like, well, we have to get back on that train. So <laughs> see you later. <laughs> yeah. So, you, you know, you just, I think that that's one of the things successfully running a mystery is, that you've got to be willing to just, there's something they've got to find. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. just some point, no matter how bad the dice is rolled, and if you feel, you know, you can't just let them get away with the evidence with a bad dice roll, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then, you know, make make something else happen. Make karma something else happen. Yeah. To, to, uh, the other is, don't do the dice roll. Role play it. Yep. Yeah, you that's know, let them let them describe how they're tearing things apart, and you know if they describe well that they're tearing apart that that uh, chimney or you know or searching the body or something. Don't even make them roll. Just let them let them role play it. As as a DM, I will admit uh, there has been several times that I have just uh, thrown some dice into a coffee cup and just made that kind of dice roll sound, um, just because like. I want the story to progress and I want to get the story done in the next three hours because I have stuff to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right, we're all going to have fun and <laughs> it's going to last about three and a half hours. <laughs> wow, you guys are doing really good tonight. <laughs> so right. if, if you were going to make a, an adventure, or a mystery adventure with pre-made characters, uh -huh. or if you were going to run a... What, uh, uh, a character um, in a, a mystery. What 5e character do you think you would run? Oh, what 5e character? Like character class? Yeah. Oh, I definitely do kind of a, a bard. <laughs> so, no, and, and I know you like bards. But, but bards are, bards I think are a good one. No, and, they're and, kind and, of jack of all and, trades and kind of stuff. And, and bards and exactly. rogues, I feel. And, and the rogues, I th I, I'm bard, I was thinking, you know, like like the singing detective in the fifties, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but but you know your bard could be your 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 interviewer. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're a good cop. Yeah, and I I want to say that uh, let's not forget about our our uh, wizards and our clerics mm -hmm. for when it comes to like research and knowing things and finding things out. Like a like a clerics definitely have kind of a a. a a, a, a system in place that they can go and talk to and it makes me think of that one movie with uh, Sean Connery uh, R.I.P. and Christian Slater uh, where they're monks uh, in the name of the rose name, name of, the, of rose. the rose yeah I think we've talked about this before <laughs> but uh, that's that's a movie that makes me think of like 
what D&D and uh, a D&D mystery could be possibly is uh, something like that. If, if uh, people out there haven't seen that, that's, uh, oh goodness, I don't even know what year it's supposed to take place at a Franciscan, I believe, monastery. Yeah. But yeah, in the Middle yeah. Ages, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great movie. It's mm-hmm. got uh, uh, Ron Perlman in it. And... Yep, yep. But I was going to say, uh, you know, I like the thief or the rogue because I, you know, it takes a thief. Mm-hmm. But there is actually a, there is a, um, a subclass uh, for the rogue, the, uh, the uh, inquisitive, which yeah. is basically that's it. He's an investigator. He's a spotter. You know, he is, he is the detective. Yeah, I always feel like every edition tries to rework the detective and never quite nails it so I'll, I'll be interested to see what this uh this looks like uh this yeah uh, uh, it's in uh xanathar's guide to everything okay all right cool yeah. three three, three and i think it was i can't remember which one of the little books it actually had um watch uh detective huh. as a uh an advanced class which was pretty cool okay cool so last thing our I want to kind of bring up is, let's say you are you you're inspired. Sure. You listen to D and D and you want to run a mystery, but you don't want to write one. So I'm there's three out there I was going to kind of recommend. Okay. And, and one is, it's an old old, you know, pre advanced it's the U one, uh, the Sinister Mystery of Salt Marsh. Ooh. And it's a classic blue cover. Uh, and you're going to have to update it to 5e because I, I think it does have like halfling as a character okay. class. Okay. Um, and um, it basically goes around a mystery of a haunted house mm-hmm. that leads to uh, a mysterious ship. Uh, and that used to be when I was, you know, in, in high school and, you know, early years of college. That was my that was my to go to mystery. <laughs> nice. Um, now, more recently, um, Hammerdog has put out called The Dread House. And this is a combined work. It's um, both 5e at Pathfinder, but also called Cthulhu. So it starts out, and there's, I think, 10 adventures in it. But it comes from basically prehistoric fantasy time, traditional um you know, D&D settings mm-hmm. uh, where I believe that the, the queen needs to wipe or wipe out all these monsters from this mansion uh, to um, so they can have a, a wedding there. And there's a couple others. Then it goes to uh, a Call Cthulhu setting in the 20s where the house has been you know taken apart stone by stone and then brought over to uh, Arkham or somewhere in the United States, uh-huh. and then a modern one, and then like a Call of Cthulhu set like in a hundred years in the future, huh. where it's a, an escape house or you know like an escape room. It's a whole house and uh-huh. it's all you know solid holograms, but something goes wrong with the computer, um, hmm. and so that's a really good one. And, you know, if you're, you got people play both D&D and Call of Cthulhu, you know, maybe follow this all the way, this adventure with this reoccurring character, this, this house. Um, now, uh, on that U1, that Saltmarsh adventure, mm-hmm. 
uh, you can, I think I paid like four bucks for it in like 1982. Yeah. You know, I but uh, you can get it. It's going to run you about 30 to $40 plus to get a, a, an old collector's edition print, but you can get from drive through for uh, four bucks. Huh. You get a PDF. Um, the Dread House, I think, runs about thirty dollars. You can get it drive through twenty dollars, but I saw like one for thirteen. It looked like the same adventure, plus bundled with like some extra maps for like fourteen bucks. Huh. Cool. And, and one other uh, that I'm, I haven't played this one, uh, but uh, it's the Poisonous Clover, and it is written by uh, someone who calls herself. Uh, Oh, the Roll Runner. Okay. And this is a for set for a 5e. It is set for uh, a one shot uh, because one of the characters' brothers murdered, and so you have to solve their the brothers' uh, mystery. But you could easily change it to an ongoing invention. Uh, the their fifth level, um, and it looks like a really good adventure, including dino racing. Huh. Um, and you can get it on uh, uh, at the Game Master or the DM's Guild for two dollars and seventy cents. You can get a cool. uh, PDF. Nice. Uh, again, really good adventure. Maybe not the most professional map, but mm-hmm. you know, for two dollars and seventy cents, that's you know, pretty cool. That's the least of my worries. Nice. Very nice. All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to D and D on D and D. Dave, is there anything else you wanted to say? Uh, I think uh, I think we got it. All right, and uh, as uh, we have a saying around here, uh, we don't have a saying. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Keep your hands off my dice, unless you've washed them or you know, pandemic or uh, I don't know. I don't want to have a keep your hands off my dice. Uh, send us something. Serious. All right. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time for D&D on D&D. And again, thank you for listening to Radio Free Oleander with DB and Farmer Dave. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you rate, review, and subscribe to podcasts. Check out our show notes to figure out who you can donate money to to help out. Or go to pgttcm.com and check out our store. And uh, why not get uh, one of our old t-shirts? Because I need to design some new ones post-haste. All right. Dave, do you have anything else to say? Bye. All right. And that's, that's the end of the show. Thank you so much, 